0: When
1: Area X first appeared, there was vagueness and confusion, and it is still true that out in the world not many people know that it exists. The government's version of events emphasized a localized environmental catastrophe stemming from experimental military research. This story leaked into the public sphere over a period of several months so that like the proverbial frog in a hot pot, people found the news entering their consciousness gradually as part of the general daily noise of media oversaturation about ongoing ecological devastation. Within a year or two it had become the province of conspiracy theorists and other fringe elements. By the time I volunteered and was given the security clearance to have a firm picture of the truth, the idea of an Area X lingered in many people's minds like a dark fairy tale, something they did not want to think about too closely, if they thought about it at all. We had so many other problems. During training, we were told that the first expedition went in two years after the event, after scientists found a way to breach the border. It was the first expedition that set up the base camp perimeter and provided a rough map of Area X confirming many of the landmarks. They discovered a pristine wilderness devoid of any human life. They
0: found what some might call a preternatural silence. Jeff Vandermeer is the author of City of Saints and Madmen*, Venice Underground, Secret Life, Shriek and Afterword, Finch, Book Life, Wonder Book, and many other titles. His newest work is the Southern Reach trilogy, consisting of Annihilation, Authority, and Acceptance. His newest book is Annihilation. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Thanks for having me. This is a novel where Area X is a major character in the novel. And As I read the book and read your descriptions of Area X, it made me think that you live in Florida and you're making a lot of use of that, aren't you?
1: Yes, I am, actually. The whole setting for Annihilation is really the 14-mile trail that I hike out at St. Mark's uh, Wildlife Refuge. But just like when you're creating a character and maybe some part of it's based on someone you know, you know, it changes when you do the fiction. So the descriptions are very much like what's in that wildlife refuge and the hiking experience you're going to have in North Florida. But then it's also changed. And then the weirder things that happen, obviously, are not things that have happened to me, although some fairly weird things have happened while I've been out hiking.
0: <laughs> like what?
1: Well, you know, you, you, you come across situations where you have to, like, jump over an alligator because there's no other way to get you know, farther on the trail, there was one time when i saw what looked like a shadowy kangaroo that then disappeared and i could never figure out what it was foxes uh in um in florida like to 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 sleep in trees so you have weird juxtapositions of looking up in a tree and seeing a fox which you know they don't they don't burrow as much as, as they do other places and um i've been charged by a wild boar out there uh, my wife and i have had to run from an otter which sounds odd i know <laughs> Uh, that uh, didn't make the book.
0: From, how do you run from
1: an otter? <laughs> well, we were coming, uh, going up this trail in the middle of nowhere, and suddenly the otter came out of the water and just started running towards us. And um, the fear, of course, is that, that, that the otter might be rabid. Uh, and Anne wanted to just stand our, our ground and, and pet the thing, and I was like, no, we're running. Um, so if there had been anyone out there watching, they would have seen this bizarre silhouette of two you know, large land mammals, mammals compared to the otter running away from this little seven-pound thing. Um, That did not make Annihilation because (laughs) certain types of animal charges go into books that are more comedic, and certain types go into books that are more suspenseful. So the boar charging incident uh, did make it in altered form into Annihilation.
0: You know, one of the things I think that you say very early on is that the natural world had become a kind of camouflage. And I really like that feeling. Mm -hmm. That, I think... uh, Suggest this kind of imminence behind the world that we mm-hmm. see everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, that when you look at the world, you look up mm-hmm. in the sky and you see clouds and they become a face. This Talk about creating mm-hmm. that feeling in prose. Well, first
1: of all, when you're walking out in the
0: world in general, but
1: it's more striking perhaps in the natural world, if you know anything about science or biology or anything else, you know that there are all these processes going on around you that you can't experience because human senses can't experience them. So for example, there was an article recently about how plants use quantum mechanics to further photosynthesis. So that's one process that's just going on in your normal weeds that are all around you. Um, so first of all, when you when you go hiking, I think you, you get a sense of that. Uh, you, you get a sense of there being things working behind the surfaces that are entirely natural so so then then the challenge in the in annihilation is to differentiate those where you have wildlife basically kind of merely going about doing its business its business from from those situations in which obviously something is subverting the landscape and in fact in the second book authority there uh, actually in the third book acceptance there's a couple of people uh, from the southern reach the secret agency that oversees all this who who joke about seti saying here's seti looking to the heavens while all this stuff is happening right here there's all this intelligent life in a way happening right here, and we're out looking for you know extra extraterrestrials beyond the the
0: stars. So, you know, one of the things I think that I I really I love this book is the the prose style that you found in, with this. Talk about finding that prose style. It's a little bit different from your other stuff, I think. It is. For one thing, I was able
1: to relax into the setting because I wasn't having to really come up with a setting. All my prior books before this, I had to create a, a setting entirely. You know, out of fragments of the real world, yes, but it's still a, an imaginary world setting. And so it's not that that's a different kind of challenge. And, and so being able to relax into a place that I knew and into the rhythms of that and kind of into the rhythms of hiking in an odd way, I think, was was where it came from. But then I also, uh, when I started writing Annihilation, was very, very sick from bronchitis. And that made me become much less fractured and more focused. Um and it created rhythms of its own because I would get up in the morning and I would write for four hours and then I would fall asleep and then I would wake up the next day and repeat because that's all I could do. And so I got into this kind of hypnotic rhythm of writing as well. And I think that comes out in the prose. And I just I just kept letting the progressions and the beats of the story just carry forward very, very naturally. And the beats and uh, in, and the progressions and, and the way the scenes unfold in authority and acceptance are different. But something about the Annihilation experience carried forward in that there's still a beat and, and a kind of a, a rhythm to it, even though they're different than the other two books, that, that somehow there's an undercurrent of annihilation in there.
0: It's a kind of a smoothness, I think, mm-hmm. which I, I really like. And I was wondering, this is a big story, mm-hmm. and you have a big canvas, and you have a lot of characters. and, and mm-hmm. but So I'd like you to just talk about, as you came up with this, um, how much of this did you... Uh, came out of the first prose from the first sentence and how much of it mm-hmm. had been floating around in your mind in a cloud waiting to gel onto the page. Right. Well I had I had been kind of
1: priming my subconscious for a while to write something that was a transformed Florida. I've wanted to write about this this landscape for a long time. Um so that was the first thing. And then secondly I just think that you know by the time I was halfway through Annihilation, I had a good idea of the overall story arc for the second two books. At one time, I thought there were going to be four books total, but then it, then things kind of compressed a little bit, and they became three. But so by the middle of Annihilation, I had, I had an idea, and so I was already beginning to kind of revise and tinker with some things with regard to the character interactions by that point, because I realized that some of the people were not quite who they appeared to be, and there were some other things going on. And so the dialogue had to do double work. It had to be the surface that's going on there, and then a lot of other things. So... By the time you get into the middle of Authority, you have a, you have a very different sense of some of the characters from the first book, I think, and then that deepens and changes even further in acceptance to the point where, if you go back to Annihilation after reading all three books, it's I think a very different reading experience. So,
0: I, I can see that already just having uh, read parts of Authority, and and I think that that's one of the things that interests me is that these books themselves become like an area X Hmm. that we can explore. So I'd like you to just talk about crafting that kind of reading experience. Right. Well, there's
1: there's several different challenges here, and one is that I want them all to be standalone novels. There have been people who have read Authority first and then read uh, Annihilation, and because the secrets revealed in the two are different enough, there's very little overlap. And so they've had a, a very creepy experience reading Annihilation, um as well as you know a totally different authority experience and and so uh you know i think the biggest thing has been keeping track of the details and making sure there are any little c- continuity quirks and errors uh but um but mostly it's just been going with the characters and 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 seeing that oh th- there's actually this other side to this person there's actually a different side of this story and so i don't repeat scenes i don't repeat scenes from different perspectives but you do get a much fuller experience i think by the end and so Yes, there are these major reveals in the third book, uh, but for me, this is really a, 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 a trilogy about people experiencing or coming into contact with something that seems inexplicable and how it shapes individuals and institutions as a result. The Southern Reach, this organization that's, that's, that's uh, overseeing these, these secret expeditions, has kind of fallen on hard times. You know, they've for 40, 30 years been trying to solve this problem. And they can't solve this problem. And meanwhile, all kinds of terrorism and ecological collapse have been occurring that have drawn attention away. Because if they don't do anything, if they don't send in expeditions, nobody dies, nothing seems to happen. So it becomes this kind of stalemate. Uh, What happens to an organization
0: when when that occurs? You know, this kind of story, stories of like... uh, Separated, forbidden, segregated places is really interesting. It has an interesting history in the lore, the fiction of the fantastic. So, I'd like you to just talk about your experience of other things you've read in this nature and putting your own vision into this, which I think is completely and utterly unique. I really love the way that you focus this on the characters. Well, it's a really
1: interesting question because you know, even with the prior books the Ambergris series where there was a seeming fixation on fungi and squid, you know, people would would assign influence that wasn't really there because I was actually studying squid and mushrooms and I wasn't really thinking about the fictional, you know, versions and and using those as uh, uh as, you know, like for example, Lovecraft's fixation with mushrooms. I didn't I didn't really think about that when I was writing those books. Uh, so th- it's kind of similar here in that, you know, I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot about naturalists. I read a lot about expeditions gone wrong in the real world, you know, even just, you know, things everybody knows about like Shackleton and then less, less, uh, you know, known, uh, quests. Even there's some penguin re- researchers from the 1960s who almost came to grief in like the... Argentina you know i mean there's all these these mini expeditions that you never hear about of 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 kind of lesser tragedies <laughs> that wind up being comic in some way or or just interesting but um so there's that and then uh and then just just knowing north florida so people have have uh compared these the, the first book to a movie called stalker mm-hmm. by a russian director um which is hilarious to me because i know a lot of people love this movie but he is the one director that I have to fast-forward because it moves so slowly. And I love slow films, but... So that, and then people mention Lovecraft and whatnot, but it really wasn't on my mind. I, I couldn't say that there was one fictional thing. All I can say is that, you know, having done this this huge anthology that Anna and I had done, The Weird, mm-hmm. where you're basically reading six million words of weird fiction, and some of that is weird expeditions, uh, like uh, Bernanos's... Uh, 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 amazing piece, uh, The Other Side of the Mountain, mm-hmm. uh, from the 60s, which is a kind of a weird quest, a kind of existential quest. I think that would probably be more influential on a subconscious level. Uh, so some some kind of weird French symbolist, you know, <laughs> is like the mulch, <laughs> along with, you know, growing up reading Galaxy Magazine and, and all these things that I don't remember individual authors or stories, but I'm sure there's a sedimentary mulch there in my brain that was just waiting to be to be somewhat accessed, you know.
0: Yeah, I remember reading all those old science fiction magazines. And I think, too, for me, and I'm wondering if this is true for you, the cover art and that kind of imagery kind of leaves a residue of vision. And I sense maybe a little bit of that at the edges of this. Yeah, no, because um, I read all that stuff at the perfect
1: age where I wasn't I wasn't yet um, analyzing stuff as a writer in a way. I was just willing to let... All of that stuff, even when it was really crappily written and crappily executed and everything else, but the central, there was something there in the central image or whatever or situation that was absolutely amazing, you know? Uh, I, I was able to just kind of absorb all that. And again, I didn't, I, I really, this is terrible, but I really can't remember any of the authors except maybe like Cordwainer Smith. Other than that, everybody else just kind of, it was just like, okay, here's another anthology of Galaxy, the best of. I'm just going to go through this, tear through it, and read it all. And I remember there was one story about like flying. Dracula sarcophaguses that were coming to invade earth, and I mean you know like crazy stuff <laughs> um and then that's all mixed in with like patty ann Rogers' nature poetry and and uh lena crohn's uh Tanneron, which is an amazing piece of of fantasy uh about talking insects in a ma- an imaginary city um you know all this stuff, but she has like a naturalist eye about it, so mm-hmm. that that's i guess Part of where the influence comes in. So.
0: Well, they say the golden age of science fiction is twelve, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> this I think is will work for those well beyond that age. And one of the things I, I love is so your sense of characterization in yeah. this. We in Annihilation, we really don't know anybody's name, mm-hmm. and everything is seen. It's like from within the walls of a box, mm-hmm. uh, and because everybody the biologist doesn't know mm-hmm. much and it's a lot of fun once we get to uh, authority mm-hmm. <laughs> to 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 find out uh, much much more about her and we find out some of her personal life yeah. so i'd like to talk about creating these characters from within kind of a walls of a box mm-hmm. so that we don't know too much and and how much do you know
1: right well um uh, I think that the books open up in in a way that 's perfect because you know like I said until halfway through annihilation i didn 't know very much, just like the biologist doesn 't but I have to say I just I, I know you 're not supposed to necessarily love stuff about your own fiction but but the biologist is probably my favorite character that i 've ever created because she she comes comes across in so many manifestations through the books, and she 's so true to herself, she knows herself so well, and I think that 's something that a lot of people don 't um, don't necessarily have as a quality. In fact, I think someone asked me, you know, about the biologist being damaged. And I said, is it the biologist that's damaged or the world around her that's damaged? Because she knows herself, at least, you know. So then in in authority, you get to see kind of a different manifestation of her. And and this worked out perfectly because, you know, people are different in different situations. Mm -hmm. And so without giving too much away, that allowed me to to give you a totally different view of the biologist and not worry about trying to make her as consistent across the books as, as you might ordinarily expect. And again, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, but it was a lot of fun writing somebody who was a little more reticent, uh, who, who, unlike so many people today, just want to give up everything about themselves at the first glance or on Facebook or whatever else. Um, and
0: so that quality I found quite interesting. You know... Um... One of the things that's interesting, too, is the various kind of uh of prose you have to find here because there's a certain kind of prose that we find scrawled on the walls and and eventually ends up in authority on doors and so i y you have a number of prose voices here, and I'd like you to talk about that. Well, the, the words on the wall, uh, the, you know, I, I've become
1: kind of wary of saying this came to me in a dream because then people seem to think that somehow the books are all some kind of dream logic, which is not true. It's Having inspiration from a dream just is the same as if you picked up a newspaper and you got inspiration from it in a way. But what happened is I actually um, woke from a dream in which I'd been walking down the steps of this tunnel and uh, seeing these living words on the wall and knew if I turned the corner I would see what was writing them. And then my writer brain kind of like airlifted me out and said, wake up, if you see this, you'll never write the story. Well, those words on the wall I transcribed as soon as I woke up, and they have remained unchanged in the books, which is probably the creepiest thing about the whole inspiration for it is that that just was there. I didn't have to work on it. Exactly as much as you find an authority is what, what, uh,
0: what came to me in the dream. One of the things that... Um, interests me uh, about the way those words uh, work is the the kind of the revelations about what they are. Mm-hmm. There are so many aspects to these words mm-hmm. and I think that is an interesting vision of language itself mm-hmm. that uh, the way that these words appear and what they are and who created them and, and just what they're even made of becomes important and I think mm-hmm. that's a really, as I say, when it comes to language in a book, y- you've added layers of importance that are, that are difficult to add mm-hmm. and not often found. Well, I, I just
1: it was it was interesting to be able to in, in authority kind of analyze those words and 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 kind of use them as a springboard for for kind of exploration of what it truly means to encounter something totally unlike you in terms of how it communicates. So there was that, but then also the words are actually very personal to one of the characters, as you find out in acceptance. So there's a level at which it's also characterization. Um, it's also kind of like a warning beacon. It's kind of there's a lot of different things that it turns out to be. And um it's also symbolic of what the agency keeps beating its head against. It's like, here are these words, they make sense on the surface. There should be something here that helps us with a clue that allows us to get ahead of this thing to figure it out, um, and instead it just keeps bringing them farther
0: down the rabbit hole. You know, uh, I, when we uh, encounter the various kind of uh, strange effects that you bring in here, you, it's very subtle at first, and then you kind of reveal more and more. And I'd like you to talk just about pacing the revelations because this is a, a novel annihilation in a series in which mm-hmm. the plot itself is a series of revelations mm-hmm. and so i'd like you to just talk about experiencing those revelations as a writer in mm-hmm. prose on the page and then as you did that one might tip up some that mm-hmm. are further out and mm-hmm. come back and reflect and inform what you're doing right now but you can't write about those that are further out yet
1: right the um well, I mean, I was right there, like, in the biologist's head as I was writing Annihilation. And so there's a scene, for example, in The Lighthouse where I i can't tell you what happens, but she opens this door and sees something, and that was a revelation to me. I mean, the, I had chills on the back of my neck writing that because I didn't know I was going to write that. And and then there was another part a little bit later on where she kind of infers that you're looking at the same thing she's looking at, which has certain implications, because she's writing a journal entry, so how are you as the reader of this finding it, and who are you exactly? Are you with the Southern Reach or something like that? So there's all of that going on. There's the, again, just the the pacing. There's the pacing of the natural world, and then there's the pacing of the character, following what the biologists would think, what she would explore, and those two things combined just, just created
0: that that voice. I don't know if that really answers your, your question, though. Um, well, no, yeah, it, it gets her. and I think that's... One of the aspects I think that is, to me, the most appealing about this book, is the way that you reveal and explore the mm-hmm. alien. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen many avocations of the alien, whether it's you know, the H.R. Giger version or, oh. or, you know, the uh, the War of the Worlds version. We've seen this uh, done many times, and I think this your vision of what is alien is very unique. And it's what's interesting is that it's very informed. By what is human? Well, um, yeah,
1: that's that's actually the question you were asking, was about um, how to decide what to reveal and when. And in actual fact, my editor at FSG, uh, Sean McDonald, was a great first reader for this, uh, because there were a couple of points where I think uh, I felt like I needed to explain more in this first book. And my editor was like, no, you don't need to explain more. You just have to continue to be true to the biologist's character. That's what this book is about. It's about the biologist. And you need to have certain answers and not, you know, maybe quite as many unknowns as there were in the first draft. But you, you don't have to reveal everything. That's You have these other books that you can do that for. All you have to do is you have to make sure you stay true to the biologist. And so there were actually a couple of more explicit scenes in terms of the the, the alienness that he, he said, Jeff, if you have this here, the emotional revelations of what happened in the lighthouse, you know, the reader has to have time to absorb that. They can't then have this thing come lunging out of the darkness, so to speak. And then if you have this thing lunging out of the darkness, you have this great little scene where she's sleeping in a tree that's really important, but it's totally obliterated by the fact you've had this other scene here. So he was very good at, at analyzing it and seeing the couple of places where it's like this really, you can push this forward into the next book. You have the time to do that. And that's what the pacing is, too. I mean, it, 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 it's it's hypnotic because the, the right things are happening at the right times. And I worked very hard on making sure that those flashbacks of the biologist are at the exact right place um, so that the reader will be interested in them and, and still, you know, uh,
0: not not feel like they're pulled out of the story. And uh, so let's talk about the other members of the the mm-hmm. expedition. <laughs> so we have a... a the reason I think this gets uh, compared to uh, Stalker is because in Stalker, the characters are just named by who they are. Mm. And so we have a psychologist, we have an anthropologist, and we have a surveyor. Mm-hmm. So I'd like you to talk about deciding to who those people were mm. and ha- how they played out within this narrative and how they played out. Over the whole narrative,
1: well, also remember there's a linguist, a linguist mm-hmm. who was disqualified, oh yes, yeah, and the linguist who was disqualified actually does become a factor later,
0: oh yes, yes,, so uh
1: so there's that too, and in fact, that was another situation where I was like i I just instinctually had the linguist disqualified, mm-hmm. and it had to do with the uses of language and something like that, and then suddenly I had a revelation of what that actually meant and why mm-hmm. uh that was that was that was very useful, but you know. Some people have said that this is like a kafka situation where you have distance from the characters through not naming them. But in actual fact, uh, as I think is clear in Annihilation and even more clear in Authority, is that the first expeditions that went in, using each other's personal names and per- personal data and using modern technology, modern communication devices, uh, came to much worse ends than those expeditions that then went in where they only referred to themselves by function and tried to think of themselves only by function and didn't use like you know uh, satellite phones and things like that. Uh, so there's a practical thing there, too. But then what I really wanted to do, in addition to that, is by not naming them, they're in a different relationship to the landscape. The landscape actually kind of inf- impinges on them more than if they had names, in terms of the way the descriptions work, in in my opinion. And then also, I wanted people to to see these characters by what they do and say, because here they are cut off. In a way, their personal histories. To, to some degree, at least within the context of the mission, don't, don't really matter, except for the biologists in this case. And, and so just evaluating on what they do and say and thinking about what they do and say as opposed to what they look like and what their names are, which is really the essence of what we are anyway, uh, I thought was
0: important. So. Well, this is, a, that, this is a novel of showing and not telling. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, I like this idea of the... Alien environment that takes pieces of who we are and shows us and uses us against ourselves. And because that's what people do too. The more you know about somebody, the more you could hurt them.
1: Right, exactly. And and that in a way is the, the idea behind the names, with again without giving out too much away, and the communication is that that if you come across something that actually is is va more vast and and somehow in some way more advanced, (laughs) um, then the things that you think are actually AIDS may turn out to be huge, huge detriments to you because they are, as you say, pathways into hurting you to some degree. Um, And even more interestingly, perhaps, hurting you without
0: meaning to. Yeah, and... There's a, there's a phrase you use a lot in this book, or, or maybe only three times, but I think it it really struck me. At one point you say, when you see the beauty in this des- desolation, it does something to you. The desolation tries to colonize you. Mm-hmm. And that word colonize you, is, i that comes up three times, mm-hmm. and it struck me every time that it came up. So I'd like you to just talk about that particular word in this book and maybe in this series. Well
1: it's happening on a, diff, a lot of different levels because what's the Southern Reach doing? <laughs> what is What are the entities beyond the Southern Reach doing with regard to what the Southern Reach is? Uh, what is the battle that's actually going on here? Uh, and then you have, of course, what's going on in Area X. And I guess I, when I think of colonization, I'm, I'm again, uh, thinking beyond a human viewpoint. I'm thinking more of, of parasitical and symbiotic relationships and things like that. Uh, so, so, you know, in thinking about what's going on in area X, that's really what I was doing as I was going again to the natural world and thinking about what colonization means there. Uh, I, I don't know that, you know, there's, there's certain things in annihilation, like the repetition of, of that, you know, it's, um, I don't know. I don't know if I have a good answer to that question. It's just, it's just part of it.
0: You know, you were talking earlier about reading nonfiction to inform this fiction, and I'm wondering what nonfiction you were reading that informed the creation of Area X. In term was it because it struck me? On one hand, you might think it it would be like uh, portraits of different kind of ecologies, mm-hmm. but then, uh, as you were just talking now, I thought. Boy, he could have just been reading about, you know, the parasitic worms that, and bacteria that live in our stomach. Right, and it's actually tough to tough to
1: identify that because I read that stuff all the time. I'm just kind of immersed in it. That's what I find interesting. I find really fascinating the idea that we live on an alien planet in that, again, I go back to the plant photosynthesis thing. It's like we think through science, we know all this stuff, but we only know the basics. We don't even know every species that lives on this on this world. And so to some degree, and then also there's all the, the, the kind of received ideas of nature out there. Like even fairy tales have a received kind of romanticized idea of nature with talking animals and things like that. You see more and more on Facebook. You see, you know, it seems innocuous, but you see animals deployed in, in situations that are very unnatural, even through, for humor or whatever other purposes, but you get more and more of a sense of a disconnect from the natural world and a disconnect from the base reality that we live in. And, um, and so that's also part of the, the conflict going on there. I mean, because you have the Southern Reach, which has its own agenda is kind of creating its own illusions, its own magic show to kind of cope with this. And then you have the expeditions, which are trying to see to some greater truth, whatever that is, even if it's a disturbing one, you know, because once they're there, they have to do that. <laughs> that's part of trying to survive. Uh, and I think, you know, it's been interesting to me, the reaction to this book, uh, because you know i'm looking at it from that perspective and i and i truly believe that our own existence on this planet is is dependent on being able to imagine this world without us on it that is actually paramount i'm not one of those people who thinks human beings should go away and 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 you know and because we do so many terrible things to the planet i just think we need to think about nature and and the world we live in in a different way look at it not as if we're you know, stewards or, or, or conquerors or whatever else, but in a much more integrated and, and subtle way. And so some of these the books, and especially, again, in Acceptance, you get that as well. So there's that conflict going on.
0: As if we're colonizing this planet. Yes,
1: exactly. That's where we, it's like we're... <laughs> yes, that's a good... Thank you. <laughs> we are. That's what we're doing. Yeah, that's and, a very good point.
0: Well, that's, that's an interesting uh, perspective. And I think that... These books do a great job of putting us in that perspective of you close annihilation or authority and you look around you and you wonder, well, gosh, maybe I might be in an area X right now and not know (laughs) Know it. it. Exactly. And Now, one of the things I really like about this book in terms of grounding it in the real world is you have a lot of like natural details. You put us right on the ground, and mm-hmm. you mix those with unnatural details. And you also do a good job of creating a kind of a backstory and a history that has enough blur in it that we could be we could be in it at any moment. Mm-hmm. So talk about, you know, the 30-year history that you mentioned a couple times that this has been happening kind of over 30 years and other things have been going on. So it does a good job of putting us in a kind of a future that's not too mm-hmm. different from the present.
1: Right. I think, I think that distance is really, really important um, for the books to be kind of universal, I mean, the second book, Authority, you know, I had a lot of fun because I know small town, uh, small southern towns, and I know just all of that kind of backcountry and everything in terms of the, the landscape they're putting together. But I never say it's the American South, and there's a reason for that. I, I never really give names to some of the characters anyway later on because I found that that created too much specificity, like you're saying. In order for these to work on kind of a resonating level, some of that has to not be there. And I also think that's, to be honest, why some of the, the the foreign language publishers have liked the book so much because they're not they're identifiable as American, but they're not so you know Pepsi Cola and whatever that 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 you ah shucks whatever you know that that you know that, that that they're too tied to a place, and so you do also then begin to wonder even in authority you know am I in an area X am I you know whatever where am I exactly, but but not in a way I think that, that distracts from the novels that actually is a strength for them.
0: Now, uh, Authority, one of the things I liked about Authority is it kind of takes a little bit of a, <laughs> a a shift in tone. It's a little yep. funnier. Oh, good. I'm glad you saw that. <laughs> I, I really like the I sense saw of humor. that. You. <laughs> it's very low-key, but I really loved it. It's, it made me laugh a lot. But also, I think you have a great spin on spy novels. Oh, and, and, and I think that that is really outstanding. It's very nicely done. So talk about spy novels and weaving those kind of themes in yeah. because they work perfectly. I mean, secrets. What more do you need?
1: Right. Well, Authority is basically an expedition into the Southern Reach, just like Annihilation <laughs> is an expedition into Area X. And um, I have to say that one of my favorite novelists of all time is John le Carré. And I, I think that that his best work is just absolutely brilliant. In terms of the the way that he brings to bear uh, a certain interiority of character, you're really there with the person, but also paranoia and, and secrets and and what people will disclose and not disclose, which is something you find in ordinary life too. But it has more; um, the stakes are higher <laughs> in a spy novel for that. In fact, I think somebody I, I can't remember, maybe in my editor described the second book as being like House of Leaves meets John le Carré or something. You know, in terms of the tone of it and whatnot, and mm-hmm. and so. So, yeah, so so I had a lot of fun with that. I had a lot of fun with the idea of this director coming in and having to make sense of this dysfunctional organization. And, of course, then the the major thing is deciding what details would he – you know be discovering that are basic that the reader needs to know and which ones are, are less interesting to the reader and just can be summarized so really it was all about exposition too it was like is this a scene are, are, are a bunch of rabbits jumping into the border is that a scene or just a throwaway line you know is this is this a scene or a throwaway line and then i had a lot of fun also with non-sequential things seeing how much a scene can fit that isn't happening in the present moment and is that still is invisible to the reader But the other thing I really had a lot of fun with, (laughs) I had a lot of fun with authority, I have to say, is, um, and this goes along with the spy novels in a way, is uh, when I had day jobs, uh, often we would deal with government agencies or pseudo-government agencies. And you'd go in, and the level of tech would just be all over the place. You'd have modern laptops, but then be accessing a DOS system. So, you know, it's like having a 16th century cathedral next to a, a skyscraper. It's it's the same thing in these government agencies. And then also seeing sometimes, you know, without naming names, a kind of level of dysfunction, you know, an environmental protection agency where the land people don't talk to the sky people don't talk to the water people. The databases are all separate, you know, that kind of crazy stuff. So, so that actually tied in a nice way to the spy stuff because John Rodriguez, a.k.a. Control, goes in there and he does all the stuff you're supposed to do but he's trying to solve the wrong problem, <laughs> and so that disconnect <laughs> is where some of the humor comes from. That and his disbelief
0: at some of the stuff that's going on. Well, <laughs> so, I I really like the character of the assistant director. <laughs> She's one of my favorites too. She she is just great. <laughs> <Thank> so <you. laughs> talk. Eh, eh, eh. So talk Sorry. talk about creating this this, this person who yeah. is like somebody we've all had the unfortunate experience of having to work with.
1: Well, Grace Stevenson is, is basically holding the fort for the former director. And as far as she's concerned, any kind of interference with that is a problem. And so, you know, you're actually, I think you're like halfway through the novel. Mm-hmm. But by the time you get to the end, I think you have a slightly different perspective on her uh, because... She naturally seems like the antagonist because of the fact that Control is supposedly the protagonist. (laughs) Um... But there's a lot more going on with scenes than you, that you know. And 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 from her perspective, this is just the latest dumbass that's been sent down
0: <laughs> to try to
1: take over and do stuff. And, and here she is trying to deal with the managing of the day-to-day. I mean, this is my perspective of her character. And here's this dumbass who's come in asking all these stupid questions.
0: <laughs> and she has to deal with that.
1: And she also has to try to remain true to what the former director's vision was and all of this. Um, and then in Acceptance, you get an even another view of her um, and again your perspective on her changes uh, but there but there is a lot of, of humor and ultimately there's some pathos too in in that conflict between the two and i thought it was really important to commit to not just the mystery that's going on but the actual reality of what would happen if you came into the situation uh, so there's a lot of that stuff in there too
0: well it seems to me too that you have a <clears throat> A good handle on organizations, and, 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 and the fact that most organizations are notable for their disorganization. We a lot of what happens, and you know, I don't even necessarily mean this in a bad
1: way because it seems to work. But inefficiency seems to often be. <laughs> I can remember for one day job. Getting a, a half million dollar contract, where both players knew nothing was going to happen. We were just going through the ritual of like months and months of having meetings. You know, I mean, and somehow that worked. We were all employed. You know, <laughs> know it wasn't going to necessarily hurt anyone. We were just, you know, I, mean, it's, I don't know. If, I don't know what the what that is. If that's a, a terrible thing or or what, but uh, but it interests me. It interests me that we pride ourselves on being run by logic and all those other things, and yet absurdity and inefficiency seem to be byproducts of our supposed logic and, e- and efficiency. So,
0: Well, in a sense, it mirrors the the so-called efficient human world. It mirrors the natural world and being shot through with uh, bits of alien insanity.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, going back to the parasites and, uh, and whatnot, uh, you have worms fluke worms that have a crazy life cycle where it's almost like one of those weird diagrams of a machine with a marble going through all these (laughs) chutes and stuff it's like that shouldn't make any sense whatsoever we find out that sunfish have a symbiotic relationship with uh, albatrosses that there are certain triggers between them that you know it's like all those things are just amazing um and 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 hint at a complexity that we still don't quite have a handle on and the thing that cracks me up the most is i worried about some of the stuff where I get into a little bit of a little bit of uh, quantum type stuff in there uh, that it would get out of date, but in fact, over the last year, things have just gotten more nuts in terms of what scientists think is going on, so
0: i 'm safe. <laughs> So if you just pursue the most insane uh, inspirations, you're, all, you're it's good. It's almost like
1: you can do anything, though I haven't done anything. I've put some constraints on myself, so it doesn't just fly off into quantum la-la land or anything. But, um, but yeah, it's just been interesting that that it's opening up in this, this, this way.
0: Well, one of the things, too, I, for me, when I read a book like this, I have to admit that there's a certain payoff I want, mm-hmm. and that's monsters. Yeah. <laughs> And I have to say, you provide those, and they're very peculiar and very imaginative. They're not like anything else we've ever encountered. And I think that's really, really important. So I'd like you to just talk about maybe your history with monsters and uh, how you see this book in the evolution of your own deployment of them as a literary device. I think
1: uh, I almost always see something other than a monster, first of all. And I think that may be one reason why they are effective when they are effective. Like even in the Ambergris books with the uh, the gray caps, the kind of mushroom people, I, you know, even though it may not be obvious in the books, I have kind of a sympathetic reading on, on them to some degree, mm-hmm. given the context of what's going on there and some of the things that the human beings did to them. When it comes to these books, um, again, you know, I have I have obviously all the information in my head and and I and I have a backstory for them uh, that I think has the same effect. It's like it, it's not just that these things are monstrous; they're also beautiful, and they're, well, they're they're There's something about them that is vaster than you know. I mean, the, just like the world itself is vaster than we can comprehend, and that's actually a good thing. That is something that that is uh, humbling, but also satisfying. That there's this this thing beyond that we can't quite grasp all of, I think the same thing with the monsters I think monsters also I think you know I'm a big huge uh science fiction fantasy horror movie buff and and ever since alien, I feel like we've been getting replications of the alien movie over and over again in different contexts until it's become meaningless and so I think I have worked very hard to try to think about what what it means to be monstrous what you know there's there's a scene you haven't gotten to in authority yet where I think. It all comes together in such a way that, that um, well, it's tough. It's tough to talk about these books without spoiling them. Well, <laughs> uh, so. But
0: this is, I think, but what I think you're getting at here is one of the reasons I really like your monsters. Now, generally, when people use the term monster, they mean something like the the shark and Jaws, mm-hmm. which is essentially an eating machine. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's pretty uninteresting. No matter what the physical aspect of it may be, right. and you got the same thing—the Velociraptors in mm-hmm. Lost World, or, or even the Alien and Alien. You know, to a to mm-hmm. the end. I when I first saw that movie, I've grown to like it. When I first said, "What is this? They're mm-hmm. locked in a spaceship that eats them all up. This is dull. <laughs> <laughs> this is dull. <laughs> Show me something interesting. I like my monsters to have." character. yeah, And that's the I think the difference here. And what you've done is to not just give the monsters a character like making them Jim Bob the mm-hmm. repairman with bug eyes, right. but to give them a character that is in keeping with their own alien nature. And that is a difficult job. They have to have a texture. Yes. Yes. And that
1: becomes a little clearer later in Authority, but um texture is really important. Uh and 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 I did field test a lot of textures. I actually went out and petted a lot of strange things <laughs> to see what the feel of, a, of say a manta ray was or you know i mean <laughs> and i know that sounds weird but without the texture and i think i talked to my editor about this too he's like well, we need to cut this i'm like no we need to keep this texture. <laughs> At least keep this texture, okay? You want to get rid of some of this other stuff, fine, but this texture in. staying. Um, and so even though, you know, I may have a backstory for them and, and and maybe they sometimes stand for something else, they have to have a physical presence. I think China Mieville said the same thing where my monsters are not stand-ins for something else. They, they, they have to, first and, I mean, foremost, they have to have a physicality and a uniqueness and then they can stand in for something else so they can have subtext, but... Uh, so I worked really hard on that. And it, a lot of it came out naturally. I mean, there's a, there's a weird scene with dolphins in the first book. And uh, oh, I actually... I dolphins, love that scene. Dolphins yeah. come into the canals uh, in the marshes there at high tide in fresh water. They've learned to adjust to the brackish fresh water. And so Ann and I, my wife and I, had this weird experience of seeing two lines in the water. And automatically thinking, it must be otters or something. And then up came the dolphins. And there is nothing stranger than seeing wildlife not in a context that you expect. Same thing happened when we went to Australia. First time we saw a kangaroo, I saw that flash of brown. I thought deer because of all my hiking. And and when I saw the kangaroo, my brain just kind of froze. And so there's that little bit of effect, I think, also in
0: Annihilation that I try to capture. One of the things I think that interests me most is... uh, in order to get these people into this place, there's a lot of talk about hypnosis. <laughs> so I'd like you to talk a little bit about hypnosis yourself. Have you ever been hypnotized?
1: No, I, I haven't. Um, but the um, the thing about hypnosis is you can't make someone do something that they wouldn't do. That's what they say. But but that there is also the suggestion the Southern Reach is doing a lot of conditioning mm-hmm. of people behind the scenes, and a lot of kind of brainwashing and whatnot, and. And some other things I can't really talk about without, again, ruining the books. But, um, but I also thought it kind of hinted at a modern suggestibility because I think you can hypnotize people through social media these days because people are much more uh, likely to repeat received ideas now than they did even like 20 years ago. Like I remember I used to work for a company where this uh, one of the, the managers would have a different get, catchphrase like every kind of month. And so one month it was the fish rots from the head. And then you could tell that he had said I that, I that love because – I
0: love that phrase well, when you remember you <laughs> that your authority. I just, I, I, that was one of the things I wrote down. I have to admit, <laughs> the fish rots from the head.
1: But, but when that happened, you could immediately tell that he had said it because suddenly all the sub-managers were saying, Jeff, remember the fish rots from the head. And the same thing happens in, in social media where it's not really – it's kind of a suggestibility. It isn't really hypnosis, but but it gets at the same kind of thing. You have people who are more or less under a magic spell. And for a while, they're taken over by this idea or this suggestion that's been put into their head, and they act on it.
0: Um, they're colonized by the they're ideas? They're colonized,
1: yeah. And so this is the colonization coming from the Southern Reach side rather than from the
0: Area X side. And so I had a lot of fun playing around with that. Well, um, it's – the um, social media is the new and what was the uh, subliminal messages yeah, uh, yeah the, in a we, way we don't is, even yeah. need subliminal messages we dispense no, they're with all <laughs> subliminality right just uh, just throw them right in your face uh-huh yeah <laughs> so yeah so it's, it's interesting uh, uh this is a uh, i guess uh to a sense uh, in a sense this is a these novels are in part about the new american uh-huh culture well,
1: you know that's another good reason to have that distance in there mm-hmm. and and not name names and stuff because it it I think we're so immersed in that kind of stuff that it's hard to see outside of it. Mm-hmm. Like if I'd written a novel that had social media and stuff like that in it, and that was a, a factor, I think that people would be less likely to, to see what's being said if that makes any sense. No, no, I agree.
0: Um, I like the I like the uh, I think the stripped down nature yeah. of the narrative and of what's happening gives it a it makes a prose really nice it you lose a lot of that kind of annoying uh brand nameness of prose that seems to be so common these days it's like read a book and and if you it's like you're getting paid for product placement there's (laughs) no product placement here except for things you don't want to buy and don't want to experience
1: and and then there's also things in there that just happen by chance like (laughs) one day I got into my car, and there was a mosquito sc- smashed on the inside of the screen <laughs> the windshield. I had no idea. I don't didn't remember smashing it, didn't know how it got there. And I was in this paranoid frame where control is going through the agency trying to figure out what's going on. So I just wrote a scene where he sees the smashed mosquito on the inside of the windshield. And he gets all these paranoid ideas about this assistant director having done it to send a message. <laughs> <laughs> And by that, I think you're far enough down the rabbit hole that you don't know whether Control might actually have a point or whether he's getting
0: paranoid. <laughs> you know, um, I'd like you to just talk about your sense of plotting in these books because I think it's an—it's it, really unique, and it's one of the things that makes them really fun to read.
1: Well, again, it all comes out of character, but I would say this, that, that from doing uh, especially Finch, the last novel I did, and then reading all the weird stories, I learned that you didn't necessarily have to put something where it was expected to be put. And so in both Annihilation and in Authority, the plotting comes out in a way of putting the thing where it most needs to be, even if it's out of sequence. And, and especially in Authority, I think he is guarded in a different way than the biologist. And so that allowed me to plot it in a different way. And so he's reporting to this guy named The Voice, uh, who he doesn't know who this guy is. <laughs> and He's got a disguised voice. <laughs> and, all right, I don't know. I shouldn't crack me up that much, but um and so there are times when he'll turn a corner and the scene will end, and then later he'll report what happened to his boss, and that's when you'll get it and uh, and and sometimes that's the maximum moment of tension uh and if plot is sequencing things in the right order for maximum tension, then that you know him being kind of uh nervous about reporting to his boss is sometimes a better time to tell you a story. Uh, than just when it happened uh, though i do joke that uh, authority is my novel about uh, transitional spaces just like annihilation is transitional nature spaces because a lot of scenes take place in parking lots and corridors <laughs> well, <laughs> and um, for very good reasons as you'll find out later on but um, uh, but <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of corridor scenes which shouldn't theoretically work but uh, are meant to increase the tensions <laughs>
0: so, well i, I to to be honest in the workaday world a lot of work gets done in corridors parking lots doors hanging yeah. out in front of offices yeah. a lot less gets done in the office unless yeah. it, you're just chugging away trying to do something that yeah. will get treated after working for something for 3 hours it'll get discussed for 5 minutes in the corridor mm-hmm. and the and then, 3 hours yeah. is is pretty much used up yeah
1: <laughs> so so yeah so that and and then um
0: well, also too, uh, one of the things that works for you really well are the really the close perspective, mm-hmm. and that's a very interesting technique. And I've I've seen that uh, used before, but I think the way you use it is is interesting, and it helps the speculative nature seem more true.
1: Right, because because um, control especially is continually trying to figure out what's going on, so you get his interior thoughts half the time. And that allows me to vary things, which is important for the plot, too. It's like sometimes you get a lot of interior thoughts, Sometimes you get the exterior stuff that's going on. But I can, I, can, I can kind of move in and out. There's a certain level of interiority with him the whole time, though. And that's actually fairly hard to maintain. That, that takes a lot of revision and, and going back over the structure and everything else. The other thing about the plot of it is I, I, I literally thought to myself, well, what would a supernatural novel look like if it wasn't a supernatural novel, but you were still using kind of those tropes and those effects? And so authority is kind of like that, in a way. And that's why it has different sections that are like rites, incantations, hauntings, <laughs> and, um, and things like that. I was like wondering that. where those titles yeah. came from. Yeah, uh, And then also from a very close study of, this is going to be blasphemy, but uh, uh, Kubrick's The Shining, which I absolutely love. And I have to be honest, I've never read the Stephen King novel, so I don't know how close it follows. But, you know, Stephen uh, uh, Kubrick has interesting effects in there. Like, he has a TV set with no cord coming out of it, yet it's playing. And mm-hmm. it, it, that's possible today, obviously, but it wasn't back then. But most most viewers will not see that. But they will, note, They will, th- on some subliminal level, probably think, that was a weird scene, I can't figure out why. Mm-hmm. So I thought, how about translating some of those effects into this dysfunctional agency? And so part of the sense of unease there, which, again, it all ties into the characters and plotting and everything else, is... There's intentional non continuity is deliberately not correct in places. There's spaces that don't match up. There's you know things like that, and that's to help create that sense of unease.
0: Now, uh, it's been said somewhere that these are have been bought for film rights. I, I'm I'm wondering uh, how you envision that being done exactly.
1: Well, um, it's uh it's Paramount Pictures and Scott Rudin, and they're very good at turning novels into into screenplays and movies, I actually think I, I don't mind if they change it because I would change it if I was doing a movie. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't a first-person journal entry uh, situation with Annihilation, probably what I would uh, do is I would start out with, and you know, this is just my vision, you would have a, to establish a voiceover if you wanted it, if you wanted that narration still. You would have like a shot from over the reeds just kind of going towards the lighthouse And then that would be interposed with the biologist's interaction with her husband without you knowing if or is there something strange going on here. And then eventually the Reed scene would cut to base camp and you'd see the four of them introduced to them. And then it would go along intercutting. And I didn't do that for the book because it doesn't make any sense for for what the biologist, who she is as a character and and how it's doing. But movies are not a first-person experience, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And so visually, I think they could do some really cool things with it. Um, 30 years of southern reach history you know also lends itself to 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 basically pulling out whatever you want uh, sure. so yeah. so they can basically take that book and say okay well this thing really works cinematically. this doesn't and and they can mix and match and i don't i don't have a problem with that i really would be surprised and, and not necessarily happy if they stuck with exactly the the structures of the of the books
0: I've been speaking with Jeff Vandermeer. His new book is Annihilation. It's the first book in the Southern Reach Trilogy. Thank you for speaking with me, Jeff. Thanks for having me.